This is a faithful saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. I'm Jason Garcia, and this is Faithful Sayings. Well, thanks so much for tuning in this morning. If you want to be opening your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11 is where we're going to begin our study today. You know, if I had to give a title to our topic this morning, I guess it would be back to the basics. At least in a sense, we're going to be thinking about God's plan of salvation. It's something that we should always be thinking about and be thankful for and be ready to teach to others. Uh, And we just want to go through some passages this morning by way of reminder and look at look at how God saves people today. How is it that unbelievers and sinners can access and continually access forgiveness in the grace of God found in Jesus Christ? And so Hebrews chapter 11, I think, is a good starting point. It says in verse 6 that without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder, a rewarder of those who seek him. And you probably remember if you jump to the beginning of that chapter in Hebrews 11 that the writer begins by defining what faith is. He says it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and by it men of old gained approval. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, so your translation might say something uh, a little bit different, but the, the effect is the same, that it is conviction, it is trust, it is belief. We use all these words, and the Scripture uses those words, I believe, interchangeably in speaking of of our faith in God. And the critical point there that uh, I want us to see at the outset of our lesson is that without faith, verse 6, without it, it is impossible to please God. And so that's a critical piece of the, the puzzle and part of our discussion this morning is biblical faith. So there's a lot of ideas in the religious world about faith and you know much has been written on it and many of those resources are are good and we we always want to remember though what the biblical definition of faith is or or any any concept that originates from the bible and especially something so critical as faith and what we see in taught in scripture is that faith is really the the again the first step is and I think Paul affirms this are the first step in coming to God and believing God and, and, and accepting Jesus Christ and obeying Him. You know, in Romans 10 uh, and verse 16, Paul says, However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. Uh, and then he says in verse 17, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And he asked the question earlier in this chapter, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And so the point that Paul is making is, is that if, if there's nobody there to deliver and teach the gospel to anybody, how, how could they have faith? As he says in the following verses in verse 16 and 17, this is how faith is engendered. This is how faith is formed in someone by teaching them the gospel, by giving them the word of Christ, the word of God. And so we have to find a willing audience and, and we have to have a willing heart ourselves in order to receive the word of God and allow faith to be formed within us. It has that power. It has that capability. And Jesus says in John eight twenty four that unless 
Unless we believe that He is the Messiah, we will die in our sins. And I just want to quickly say that I, I know that there are those in the religious world who teach that we are saved by faith only and faith alone. And typically what is meant by that, as at least in, in the as I've encountered in my experiences, what they mean is that there is no obedience required in order for people to avail themselves of salvation. And uh, I, I believe that's a false concept. However, I do believe that there is a way that we can say we are saved by faith, uh, just as the Bible says, but not not faith only. Uh, so, And that has to do with, again, coming to a biblical understanding and definition of faith. And, you know, before we get too far off the rails here and going down that road, let me just explain what I mean uh, by a biblical concept of, of faith and why I think and believe that is contrary to what people typically understand faith to be. And that is just sort of a, a mental kind of assent uh, or an academic exercise. So in other words, I, I know the Bible, I understand the Bible, um, but uh, and and, that, and that's all that's necessary. It's I don't need to really respond in obedience in any way, because then I would be trying to earn my salvation, and um, that's really a false dilemma. But we'll get more into that. So let's just keep looking at these passages regarding faith. Galatians chapter five and verse six, Paul says, "For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love." And I think that's a critical point. Uh, that this association with with working and faith, uh, and Paul says that a sincere faith, a genuine faith, First Timothy one five, is this kind of faith in Galatians five six. It is a a working faith, a faith specifically that works through love. You know, if you were to go to First uh, Corinthians chapter seven, you find almost that it, that that parallel phrase there when Paul says. Uh, that neither circumcision or uncircumcision is anything. But instead of saying faith working through love, uh, he says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. There it is again. But what matters, 1 Corinthians 17, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 19, what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. And so... We we take those passages together and we you know understand that both written by Paul and what he has in mind here is that faith working through love Galatians five six is keeping the commandments of God First Corinthians seven nineteen he's using the exact same phrasing there in the first part of those verses and some will quickly object to that and say you know you're I know what direction you're headed you're talking about working. And obedience as uh, the means to salvation, and that, and you're trying to say we can earn our salvation, and that's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. That's not a, that's not a biblical concept, and so um, I, I don't believe that, and I don't believe anyone can earn their salvation. But nevertheless, uh, I do believe that obedient faith is is critical, is is necessary, and. If we say that we have faith and yet we have no works, as James says in James chapter 2, our faith is is meaningless. Our faith is dead, he says. Our faith is incomplete. Those are all words that he uses there. Uh, in Hebrews 5.9, the writer says of Jesus that having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of salvation. So uh, even though all of these passages that we are looking at teach that faith is very practical in nature, faith is 
Um, biblical faith is an obedient faith, a faith that works, a faith that is living, um, that that manifests itself in our, our own life through what we do and what we say and what we think. Um, that That does not mean that we earn our salvation. That does not mean that God is on a point system and that we are earning credit uh, with him and that if we don't earn enough credit or enough points, then we won't then we won't be saved. That's not a biblical concept. Um, we are saved by grace through faith, um, but that does not mean we are null of any responsibility of, of obedience and that we are unaccountable. Um, we must we must obey as Hebrews 5 9 says and if we were going to go back to Hebrews chapter 11 in that famous passage on on faith as the writer is going through example after example uh, what do we see you know if, if we were just to take very quickly a cursory reading of Hebrews chapter 11 it says for example in verse 4 by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain and by faith Enoch was taken up and he did not see death because before he was taken up, he had obtained the witness that he was pleasing to God. And by faith, Noah, being warned by God and reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world. And by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And so that pattern continues for that entire chapter. And the pattern is, if you didn't pick up on it, but you probably caught it, is that faith is always associated, faith always manifests itself in an obedient response to whatever God is saying, to whatever God has called us to do. In Abel's case, he called for a specific kind of sacrifice, and Abel offered it. He took action. He offered it. Enoch obtained the testimony that he was pleasing to God. He understood what God's will was. He conformed to it, and thus he was pleasing to God. By faith, Noah again prepared. He built the ark because he believed what God said, that he was going to destroy the world. And again, lastly, the last example that we consider, and there's more in this chapter, but by faith, Abraham uh, and this time the writer uses the word specifically in verse 8, obeyed. Abraham obeyed by faith. And again, that is consistent with what we see throughout Scripture. In fact, when Paul begins the letter to the Romans, he starts by saying in Romans chapter 1, if you drop down to verse 5, he says, of Jesus Christ, whom we have received, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about, listen to this, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. And so while the concept of obedience and, and faith are not incompatible, in fact, what we see in the New Testament is that they are inseparable and they are conjoined and that uh, faith without works is dead just as surely as works without faith is dead. That, But that at the same time does not mean we somehow earn our salvation. So what's what's the connection then between grace, faith, and obedience? I think Paul answers in a number of places, and the New Testament answers in a number of places, but one of those is in Romans chapter 5. 
And he says in, in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, he says, We have been, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to the next, very next verse. Some people seize upon verse 1, and then they totally forget about verse 2, uh, which is the rest of the sentence and thought. Uh, so we have been justified by faith, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So how do we how are we introduced into the grace of God? How do we access the grace of God? Well, Paul says it's by faith. And if we understand faith biblically in this in this context and how Paul uses it elsewhere that a sincere faith as he makes the distinction and and qualifies it in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, a sincere faith is a working faith, is an obedient faith, is a living faith. And all those other New Testament descriptors that we've seen, that's the kind of faith that allows us to access the grace of God. You see, the grace of God calls us and instructs us to live a, a certain way and to live obediently and to have an obedient response to what he is, is calling us to do. In Titus chapter 2, Paul will say this in verse 11. He says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul will go on to say that we have been redeemed for this purpose, to be purified, to be his own possession, verse 14, and to be zealous for good deeds. But I want to seize upon verses 11 and 12 in this example uh, with regard to the grace of God, that it should, it should teach us, it should instruct us to do something, to do what specifically, he says, to live a certain way. In other words, to be obedient. And if we're not, that is an indication that we have not received the grace of God and that we do not stand in the grace of God, that we have not been introduced into it through faith. And so the reason I say that this idea of, well, it's either faith only or uh, you, you must be teaching that you have to earn your salvation, the reason I say that is a false dilemma because people present those options as the only as the only possible teachings when in fact the bible is giving us a third alternative the bible explicitly says that one is not saved or justified by faith only but also by works but the bible also does never says and it would be blasphemous to say that we can somehow earn our salvation that's completely a product of the mind of, of man. Obedient faith is what matters in the eyes of God. And an obedient response and faith in His Son Christ is what matters. And that is how we are introduced into His grace and access His grace through the blood of Jesus and, and by our faith in Him. But we by no means earn our, our salvation. I want us to go to Acts chapter 2 now. And see 
an example of this unfolding. So we've seen in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And in this narrative of Acts chapter 2, this is exactly what we see Peter specifically delivering the word of Christ, the gospel, the word of God. Of course, he didn't have a Bible in his lap. And in Acts chapter 2, it wasn't a Bible study. There were some miraculous things happening. Peter and the other apostles were speaking in different languages to all these different people from around the world who were in Jerusalem. And he delivers the first gospel sermon to the world. And he convicts them and says that you need to know that this Jesus, verse 32, that God raised up to which we are witnesses that he has made him both Lord and Christ. He has made him both Lord and Christ, verse 36. And then he really convicts them and says, whom you crucified. So he's really taking these people to task and he's going toe to toe with the very people who have killed Jesus. And we think, surely, surely the people who hear this, are you know, they, they know what they've done. How could they possibly be convicted? But they are. Faith, the germ of faith is planted in their hearts and it immediately begins to grow and they are convicted by the word, just as Paul said they would be. Romans ten seventeen, and Romans 1, 16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And it says in verse 37, here's their response to hearing the word of Christ. They have faith. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what do we do? What shall we do? And that question alone should speak volumes to us. Even these people who first heard the gospel understood as a result of this message, as a result of the truth that Peter had spoken, the faith that now was beginning to grow in them and that they had, and believing that message, they understand they needed to act, they needed to do something. And what does Peter say in verse 38? How does your Bible read? Does it say, well, you have faith. You're saved. You don't need to do anything. That's not what Peter says, is it? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so there's the instruction. Repent, and each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we see thousands of people do this that very day, who, in verse 41, it says that those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. And then verse 47, that those who followed the same pattern, those who were obedient, it says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so they understood, I have to do something, and Peter gives them the instruction, you need to repent and be baptized. Well, what is repentance? You know, we're given a great picture, I think, in Second Corinthians chapter 7 of what repentance is. So Paul had a lot to say about um, this this church and trying to convict them. There were a lot of issues that were going on. But uh, he speaks of this, this sorrow 
in 2 Corinthians 7. So he's already written 1 Corinthians at this point. He's convicting them of many things. And now he says in 2 Corinthians in verse 8 of chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, that he says, Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, and speaking of that first letter, in which you know he was indicting them on a number of things and convicting them, he says, I, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that this letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. But now I rejoice that you were made sorrowful, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. So here's how the process begins. And it's it's parallel to what we saw just read in Acts chapter 2. The people who heard the word of God there, even though they were the first believers and Paul is writing to people who already have been converted, the effect of the word of God is still the same. It pierced their hearts in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. It cut them to the heart, and they were convicted. And here, Paul is saying, I, I know what your response was to my first letter, and you were also cut to the heart. You were made sorrowful. And he says, I'm not happy about that. But yet I, I do rejoice now that this sorrow made you or led you to the point of repentance in verse 9. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer the loss of anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the world, verse 10, excuse me, according to the will of God, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. Now listen to all these different qualifiers here. What earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing and what zeal. What avenging of wrong. And so Paul is painting a very uh, a, a detailed picture with all these different attitudes of what repentance and what the penitent heart looks like. It is a heart that is sorry for wounding God and sinning against God. It is a heart that is convicted, that is indignant about sin, that is fearful of God now, that longs for God and has zeal and wants to avenge the wrong that it's done. That's what repentance looks like. I want to do whatever I need to do to get my life right and to be pleasing to God again to be acceptable to him as, as a result of the faith that I have. The people in Acts chapter 2 had faith. They believed Peter's word. The Corinthians believed the word of God that Paul sent to them. And they were both convicted and made sorry. And so it resulted in action. Just as faith always does. Legitimate faith always does. And Peter will also say in, in that Acts chapter 2, verse 38 passage that we read that those people needed to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of, of sins. And this is something, again, that is a message that will be consistent throughout the entire New Testament, even in the book of Acts. And, you know, we take the Apostle Paul as an example who himself was uh, originally a persecutor of the church, and we remember his experience on the road to Damascus as Jesus confronts him and says that he's persecuting him. And, and Paul uh, there is, is convicted by the word and he wants to obey and, and he's blind and he, he continues to Damascus and he, 
encounters Ananias there, and it says in verse 17 of Acts chapter 9, that Ananias departed and entered the house where Saul was. And after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Other accounts of this same story, you know, this is the actual narrative in the history as it's unfolding, but Paul himself will recount and rehearse what happened to him on the road to Damascus and his conversion two more times in Acts when he is standing um, before uh, different courts and kings and things like this as he's giving his testimony. And he says in Acts chapter 22 and verse 15, as part of Ananias' message, he says, again, Ananias told him, you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And then in verse 16 comes the question, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so it's, I'm I'm using Paul as a specific example, but it's really not difficult to see this pattern continue throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament. And this is consistent, of course, with what Jesus himself saw, what Jesus himself taught that one must be baptized in order to receive salvation. Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, who has believed, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Another text from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a very controversial one. I'm not sure why, uh, if we were just to read Peter's words in context here. So, beginning in verse 18. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. And we're thinking about baptism here, so we want to single out and think about what Peter has to say with regard to baptism and its role in the plan of salvation. He says, Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. And then in verse 21, Peter says, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone to heaven. So what's Peter's point here? He goes back in history and he's pointing to this example of Noah. And he says that God was waiting in the days of Noah when when Noah was was preaching while he was constructing the ark. And all those people who perished are now uh, kept in prison. Their spirits are in prison. It was the spirit of Christ that was in Noah preaching to those people. And he says, in the end, in the final analysis, eight people, verse 20, were brought safely through water. Your translation might save. Uh, might say eight people were, were saved through water. And then what does Peter say in verse 21? Corresponding to that, corresponding to that example of eight people being saved through water, baptism now saves you. Not baptism only. That's not what he's saying. Or baptism divorced from faith or repentance. That's not what he's saying either. 
But the assumption is those who have faith in Jesus Christ, because he's writing to Christians here in 1 Peter. He's saying, baptism now saves you. And it's not just taking a bath, he says. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. But rather, this is an act that is more significant than that. It is an appeal to God. It is an appeal specifically, he says, for a good conscience. And it doesn't get much plainer than that. Again, that's a controversial passage, and I'm, I'm not sure why. Because uh, Peter makes it very plain, and, and some will uh, get off in the ditch about uh, you know how people, well, Noah's family was actually saved by the ark, or they were saved by God. Well, the, the Bible teaches all of those points. That's true. Noah was saved by God. Noah was saved by grace. Noah was saved by his faith, as we saw in Hebrews 11. Noah was saved by his obedience. But the point that Peter wants us to understand in that context, the point that Peter is making is a typological point. And he says, just as those eight people were saved through water, baptism now saves you. Let me read to you one more passage from Hebrews chapter 10 on this point. He says, Brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And look at this, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so here the writer is alluding to all the points that we have made so far, save for one. But he also makes the point that Peter makes about this appeal to God for a good conscience. And he says, our, our hearts have been sprinkled and clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. See, he makes the same connection. We have a faith. We have been washed with, with water. And again, he shows the significance of that, a clean conscience. And then he mentions this other point in verse 23, this confession of our hope without wavering that we must hold fast to. And again, we find that in the New Testament as well. Finally, in Romans chapter 10, Paul will say this in verses 9 and 10. He says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Yes, you believe with your heart, Paul says, and you must believe with all of your heart, and you must obey from the heart, Romans six seventeen. But unless you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, how can we say that we're saved? If we refuse to confess him, as those men did in John chapter 12, in verse 40 and 42, if memory serves. Many believed in him, John says, but they would not confess him. They would not confess him. And there's more that we could say about this, but we're out of time this morning. We've looked at... Biblical faith, and we understand that it's necessary for salvation, that without faith, Hebrews eleven six, it's impossible to please God. We must believe that He is who He says He is, that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him, and that we must 
repent genuinely, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We must be convicted and allow our sorrow for sin to push us to repentance, as Paul explains there in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 9, that that leads to salvation and that we must confess our sins and that we must confess that Jesus is Lord with our mouth, Romans 10, 9, and 10, and then be baptized for the remission of sins and then remain faithful until death so that we can have the crown of life, Revelation 2, 10. We're out of time this morning. I thank you so much for tuning in and hope you'll join me next week. Please visit our website, leonvalleychurch.org. Send us an email if you have a question or comment at leonvalleychurch at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Once again, I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.